this is Secret Sauce, a podcast about the secret ingredients in artwork and life. I'm your host, Becca Borelli. I'm also an illustrator in Austin, Texas, and this episode is titled Like a Monet. So before we dive in, I want to talk about this title in relationship to the production of this podcast because these episodes have been like Monet's in very unique ways. And and before we dive in to the topic today, I want to talk about that. I am increasingly having to lean into a discomfort (laughs) with the recording and creative process around this podcast because I don't have this very integral thing to, you know, great creative works, which is time. (laughs) I have been talking to some of my new mom artist friends, and I've been talking to some of my seasoned mom artist friends, and the general similar bit of information that I'm getting from all of them is that just like me, new moms have very little time to do anything creative. And creative, artistic moms who have older kids say that around seven or eight years old is when they start really being able to dive back into their creative practice because they have the time. (laughs) And so when I decided to do this podcast again, I... You know, I I was like, okay, this is the single creative thing I'm doing right now. I don't have a lot of time to do anything else. I'm doing these little tiny mini artworks every day that I chip away at like five to 15 minutes a day. But, you know, that's about it. Like there's nothing else. And I only have a few hours to do this. And before Brayden was born, I would sit down and I would have an outline and I would write out like, what I wanted the episode to do, what I wanted y'all to get and to feel. And then I would record and re-record and re-record until I felt satisfied that those goals had been met. And I, and when I decided to re, re-up Secret Sauce, it was at the urging of something bigger, which is, which is the episode I posted two or three weeks ago, making art with something bigger, there was this urging, like, you need to do this again. And I had a conversation with that thing. And I said, okay, but I don't have time. This thing's not going to be very good. And I heard clear as day, post it anyway, post the shit anyway, do it in one sitting and let it just be. And I have to tell you that that is wildly out of my comfort zone. And I'm going to listen and just see what happens. <laughs> and so these podcast episodes, y'all, just just so you know, they are recorded in one sitting. They ramble wherever my brain goes at the time. I have a general idea of where I think I want to go. But then we just see. <laughs> and I want to share this disclaimer, not necessarily so that you give me more leeway if the episodes are more rough or harder to follow or or anything like that because you know it is it's going to be what it's going to be but so that you know that you're getting a first cut and 
one of the things that I would often do when I would edit the podcast before is I would go back and I would think about you. And I would think about how are a variety of types of people going to hear what I just said? And is what I just said going to be the most helpful to them? Or, or at the worst, is it going to trigger them and make them, you know, never listen again? And then I would, I would hone in on like the core of what I was trying to say in the cleanest way possible. And that is not happening right now. So just, so know that ahead of time. (laughs) And, and, and we'll just, we'll see what happens with Secret Sauce. I am, as always, sitting in my son's bedroom recording this and we will see where it goes. He's at his grandparents. It's quiet in the house. I'm going to do a quick little tweak of audio and then it'll be up live for you to listen to you on Wednesday morning. It is a couple days late this week and I almost thought about skipping this week because I really was wanting more time to process this topic and I got a pretty clear, no, you, you should do it now. So here we go. Like a Monet. In the 90s, and some of you are going to be familiar with this, I first heard the phrase, it could be older than this, but I first heard the phrase, she's like a Monet. From far away, she's beautiful, but when you get up close, it's just a big old mess. Which, y'all, is a messed up thing to say. <laughs> like, it's gr- it's a gross thing to say, and it's not helpful, and it's also objectively wrong if you've ever had the the extreme pleasure of seeing a Monet in person you would know that you know unarguably his work is gorgeous up close and gorgeous far away his work is incomprehensible viewing it through a book if you've if you've never seen it in person, you've only seen a tiny percentage of what makes it awesome. Seeing a Monet in, in person is where it's at. His works are gigantic. They're displayed in a specific way so that you can immerse yourself in them and sit in them. Um, they're, they're fantastic. And, I, and I'm specifically referencing the water lily pa- panels because the water lily paintings are the ones that he's most known for. Um, and when you experience them, you really truly even if you're the type of person that would be dragged to an art museum by your spouse (laughs) as a favor even you could sit in the middle of water lily panels and absorb them for longer than a minute or two you would want to I promise there's so much there there's so much feeling in them that is incomprehensible through a book or a printed image or a reproduction of any kind. So what I think people are referencing when they say like a Monet is that when you get close to the water lily painting, for example, and you get really close, what it is, which is a pond full of water lilies, (laughs) becomes invisible. And it's it's dashes of color that are beautiful, but what they are becomes invisible. When you get far away, then you see all of these seemingly random dashes of color become this thing and it's magical. 
And Monet wasn't the only one to do this. Um, those of you familiar with painting and those of you familiar with art know that he was part of a school of painters called Impressionists. And Impressionists were fascinated with this idea of rather than paint something in a highly representational way, like a photograph, what would happen if we loosen up the technical application of color so that we could express the energy or the emotion of a space instead of just the way that it looks to the eye? Van Gogh is someone else. He was a post-impressionist. He was also known for this. The Starry Night painting that he did is so famous now that it's it's priceless for all intents and purposes. And yet in his lifetime, he was incredibly poor and couldn't feed himself and would often choose between food and paints when he had to purchase things. And he was also known for being quite mentally ill. He had a really hard life and not all impressionists or post-impressionists had a life like Van Gogh's, but they also didn't enjoy the classical sort of appreciation (laughs) that more Renaissance style painters enjoyed, at least in the early 20th century. Their style of painting was was so different. People didn't know what they were trying to do. It just looked like a mess. It didn't, the, their attempts at expressing feeling and emotion were lost on viewers at that time. And, and it's often said that they were ahead of their time, somewhat. I, so I want to, I want to start there and I want to start there as a sort of foundation to talk about how we view paintings, not just that other people have made or view artworks that other people have made, how we view them close up and far away, how the perspective of where we are in proximity to the work changes the way that we view the work and how that is an amazing metaphor for the ways that we could do the same thing in our lives, viewing life up close, viewing life far away, zooming in, zooming out. There's pros and cons to both. Looking at a Monet really, really close gives you this gorgeous, y'all, this gorgeous, luscious perspective on the colors that he picked, the richness of the colors he picked. I promise you, these are not colors that you're going to just get out of a watercolor tube, (laughs) you know, or like a a Crayola tube. (laughs) You can see the texture from the paintbrush. You can see the rhythm and the pattern of these strokes and these dabs they almost have a movement to them when you're up close but you have no idea what it is either it looks random that randomness can be beautiful it can also be disconcerting zooming way out that disconcerting feeling goes away as we see oh that's what it is oh can you relate to to this not just in art but also in life when you're really up close to something you see all these gorgeous details and they're seductive and they're fun and they're exciting and yet it's disorienting to not know what you're looking at and and honestly a lot of the time it can be downright scary 
to not know what you're looking at. Even in an art museum, um, you know, where scary isn't probably the word we would use, it's disorienting to look at something and not get it. I, when I first took my first field trip of third graders and their parents to the Akron Art Museum in Ohio when I was a school teacher there, I'll never forget we, we ran into a Barnett Newman, which is a field, a color field painting. Uh, Barnett Newman was an abstract expressionist and he worked primarily in the, I believe in the thirties and forties, but uh, my art history is so rough. Any of you that know I'm wrong or know if I'm wrong, I apologize. Um, he, he was known for doing these field paintings and, and like others that worked like him, like Mark Rothko, who has a famous installation of his work in Houston, Texas, called the Rothko Chapel. Field painters were interested in, if I paint a field of color large enough and someone sits in front of it, they'll be disoriented, right? Because we've trained people that art is supposed to be a thing. It's supposed to tell you what it is. This is not a thing. This is a color. And it is very disorienting and and borderline infuriating for people when they first encounter a field painting because, and they'll say the thing that we all know. I know, I know some of you know immediately what they, what a lot of them say, they'll say, I could do that. I could do that shit. How, why, why is this museum spending millions of dollars on this crap? I could go make it in my garage right now. It, it, it sparks up anger in people to see field paintings. And it wasn't that abstract expressionists were trying to anger people, specifically with this Barnett Newman field painting. I remember it was mostly red with like some pinstripes of like a gold, yellowish, orange color on it. It wasn't that he was trying to anger people what one of the objectives that he had as well as many others like him was when you encounter a painting like this it's like a mirror for you you have to encounter yourself and the the Rothko chapel um in Houston has installed his black field paintings in this octagonal building that you can kind of sit in the middle of. And if you go visit there, you have to check in your phone. You're not allowed to take it in. There's often people meditating outside or doing Tai Chi. It's this very Zen, beautiful space. And you are not allowed to talk and you go in and you sit. And the paintings are meant to help you encounter yourself, to encounter the sublime, to encounter the deep parts of you that are craving representation. Just tell me what you are so I know what I can be, right? This type of painting is is really radically different, right? Whereas prior to these types of painters, we were so used to being told, I am a vase, I'm a vase of flowers. And I feel like the Impressionists kind of bridged this sort of gap between the realists and the abstract expressionists, right? Where they were kind of, where, you know, the, the Vincent van Gogh vase of sunflowers, you know, was, it was representational in that you can look at it and see sunflowers. But the way that he painted it was messy and alive and vibrant, and it gives you a feeling of what sunflowers might feel like if 
you were sensitive enough to the energy of them. It was Van Gogh's way of saying, sunflowers vibrate this thing. And I know a lot of you can't feel it, but I can feel it and let me try to visualize it for you. I don't know exactly if this is how Van Gogh would describe his work, by the way. I'm totally making this up as I go, but I imagine that there's like a general sense that I'm right, you know? And when you are viewing works of any kind, whether hyper-realistic or incredibly not realistic, you are engaging with this thing from different perspectives, physically and, and also figuratively, right? Maybe you, you're moving up close to it to see the brush strokes. Maybe you're moving far away to see it better. But also the mood that you're in that day is affecting the works, the work, the the life events happening to you at this particular moment are affecting the way that you perceive the work. And this is the same with life, right? Life is this way too. We have gotten used to thinking that we're like, you know, computers (laughs) or machines that are objectively all seeing the same thing. And science is been increasingly showing us that's not true. In fact, it's almost on the other side of the spectrum true that we're creating things as we see it, which is a topic for another time. So I wanted so I wanted to start with that before we move into this story about what I've noticed when I work with painters for the first time. And if those of you that listened to, to the last episode, Art Baby, you know I'm not a painter. <laughs> I am not a painter, um, but I have taught painting classes before. Believe it or not, I, I have enough training from my undergrad and just generally to teach beginning adults painting and to do it successfully. And I, I've done it um, a few times. <laughs> I probably won't do it much again. Um, but I remember having this like wonderful feedback from the students. I think I did it like twice, like four or five years ago and, and having these and going in just being like, man, I'm way out of my comfort zone here. I'm going to be drawing on things I learned in, when I was 20 in college and hope that it's enough. And then these adult students would say, this is the best painting class I've ever taken. And I think it was because I didn't know. <laughs> so much about painting that I was able to connect with a beginner painter in this really special way. And one of the things I noticed while I was working with these students who were painting often for the first time is that there's a lot of nervousness around producing something that meets the standard of beauty that they hold for this thing. And I talk a little bit about this in Art Baby, if you want to listen to the episode before this one. And one of the things that all of us do, including first-time artists, when they're nervous or scared or they have fear about what they're going to make, is they get really close. And This is why if you take a drawing or a painting class, like one of the first things a lot of teachers will have you do is to step back and loosen up your arm and to to do your first painting marks or your first sketching marks with like your whole arm or your whole hand to keep, keep everything really loose. 
because the tendency is to get really close and tight. And this isn't just in art, this is in life too. When there's fear and when there's stress around what you're doing, everything contracts and your focus narrows in to block out anything that could distract you. And in some ways that's really helpful. And in other ways it's really unhelpful. And here's why. Because when you focus in too much and block out too much, you also block out really helpful information. A great way to think about this, and I think I've used this metaphor on this podcast before, is skiing. I remember I was a senior in high school when I decided (laughs) to join the ski club, and I had never skied before. I was so scared. I, you know, got put into like the bunny group (laughs) that had never skied before. And I remember the ski instructor was so, was so lovely. And he took us on this little, like barely mountain of snow and he showed us how to do the snow plow. Those of you that have skied before, you know what I'm talking about. But if you've never skied, like one of the first techniques they teach you to control yourself on skis is to point your toes inward and make like sort of a V shape with your skis. And then using your body weight, you let yourself slide down the hill and you slowly push the skis, keeping that V shape as a way to stay upright and carve in the snow and to learn the feeling of carving in the snow. But one of the things he said the first time we went down this little mountain that I'll never forget was he said, I know you're going to want to look at the tips of your skis. He said, that's really normal when you're scared. He said, but what happens is, is that you start making these little tiny adjustments because you're focusing on the tips of your skis. And those little tiny adjustments are actually not helpful. He said, your body is wired to make the adjustments that you need naturally if you feel the mountain. And the only way to feel the mountain is to look down at the bottom. Look where you're going. Take in all that extra information, all the people around you, the weather. He said, I know it feels counterintuitive, but your body will sense just what it needs to. If you focus on your toes, you're going to fall. And he was right. (laughs) It's the same with making art. So students would like start getting really contracted. Their bodies would get tight. They would start holding their paintbrushes in this sort of like clenched fist. They would keep their arms really close to their bodies. Their elbows would be really tight. They would often be painting with the tiniest brush they had because they could control it better. And they would be you know, inches from the canvas, focusing on the littlest, tiniest details first, because those were the ones that they felt like they could control first. And that feels good initially. And then what would happen inevitably is at some point, the students would step back And they would be like, oh my God, I thought it looked good, but now it looks like shit. I'm a terrible painter. It doesn't even look anything like it, like I thought it did. Can you relate to this? Have you made art this way? Have you done this in life? I, I certainly have. (laughs) I don't want to tell you a story about that later, but, but this is, this is a very common thing that happens, right? And 
So what ends up happening in a good class, in a good artistic practice, is that you learn to work close and far, close and far. And often this is where easels become really helpful, even if you're drawing something tiny, right? If you go onto a table, it can be really easy to just stay very close. But if you have something propped up vertically, stepping back and going forward becomes much easier. And this process of changing your perspective from far to close is similar to this advice that the ski instructor gave, right? That your adjustments creatively become less rigid and they become more fluid with with what you're with the medium that you're working with, right? Words can kind of describe this experience, but it's not until you do it that you know what I mean. Like I know if someone had told me how to do a snowplow skiing, I would have kind of understood, but it's when you're on the mountain that you're like, oh, I see what they mean. You know, it's the same with art. So take where it resonates with you about this description and leave the rest if you've never painted. Um, and if you've, if you're curious about what that experience would feel like painting, I highly suggest you take a, take a painting class because it's incredibly fun to experience a work from far away and close up. And what happens when you're working back and forth like this is that you get the same pros of being close and pros of being far away um, as when you're viewing, like for example, a Monet. So you get to see the gorgeousness of the colors up close, the gorgeousness of the strokes, the way that the shapes are laying onto the canvas. But when you step back, you get to see what they're trying to be because up close, you don't get to see that. This is the same in life. Let's go back to the colors for one more second. And I want to talk about the way that this goes in life. So when, when you look at a, a Monet or a Van Gogh or any of the classical impressionists, one of the things that a lot of my students, like my little students, when I would show second and third graders, you know, a Claude Monet, is they would notice that there were like, like, in the water lilies paintings, in the blue water, right? We're used to, con we're conditioned and used to thinking of water as blue. And there's plenty of blue in the water lily panels. But there's also reds and yellows in there and browns and purples and like pinks and all this, all these colors you don't associate with water. And the kids would pick up on that. And you know, when you would zoom back, those dashes of red in the water would, would fade and you would almost not be able to see them at all. But they gave luminescence and density to the color that would have been absent if Monet had been like blue tube, <laughs> right? It's a sign of a master colorist who's able to put red into blue and make it function <laughs> as a pond, right? When you're up really close, you just see red next to blue and it doesn't register as water at all. In fact, it can feel disconcerting. Like, what is this thing? I don't get this. This red doesn't belong here, <laughs> right? And then when you zoom back, 
you're like, oh man, not only does it belong there, but it makes it better. It makes it better. It has function. And how perspective, how our distance from a thing can change the way that we understand something's value. I want to talk about how this works in life because this is working in our lives all the time. And we don't realize it. I don't realize it. And this past weekend, I had this experience that really you know, hit this home for me. So I was, I was just in West Texas, which as some of you know, who have listened to this for a while or have followed me on social media for a period of time or have followed my work for a period of time. A lot of my work is inspired by West Texas, by the desert. I love going out there before Brayden was born. I was going out four to six times a year. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry. Not going to be edited. <laughs> um, and when Brayden, when we got pregnant, Jason and I had some chats. Like I was like, this is one of the things I'm most worried about, right? I'm going to really mourn the loss of that time because y'all, my parent friends know this. It's not realistic for me to leave Brayden four to six times a year with Jason to go out there, at, the, at least not in this stage of his life, right? He's, you know, very dependent on both his parents being here. And so we made an agreement that we would go at least once a year, possibly twice. So we went back in February. It was pretty fun. It was also challenging. Brayden was only six months old. He enjoyed it somewhat, but he was very little. And we made plans to go again this October when he was older. And we increasingly realized, oh, there's no way he's going to handle that drive. It's He's a pretty chill dude in the car up to about three hours. And then he freaks out. And so if we were going to go out there, it was going to have to be two days out and two days back. And you know, that's not ideal for someone with limited vacation like Jason. And so he's like, look, I just think we need to like table this for now. But, you know, really, why don't you just keep the reservation for yourself? I'll watch Brayden for four days. You can just go. What a guy, right? <laughs> this is not a podcast applauding my husband, but it should be noted. He's an amazing man. And so I went. And... Whenever I go to West Texas, I stay with this couple that I've gotten to be very close with. They have, they used to have an Airbnb. They've since closed it down and they use it only for people that they, they know right now. Um, in Marathon, which is this small, no stoplight town of 400 people that also weirdly has this great art population and this luxury hotel <laughs> And this really great hippie grocery store. And so there's this vibrancy in life in this little tiny town that you don't normally see when you're going through a 400-person town. <laughs> uh, I love it there. To me, it's it's the best of all worlds. And it's the only place I'll stay in West Texas. I, I will drive and visit other parts, especially Big Bend National Park. But when I stay, I always stay with this couple there. And it was when I met these two, they're in their fifties, they've been ranchers their whole lives. They grew up on the land with their parents. They up until recently were working a 20,000 square mile ranch with Longhorn. And then they moved to Marathon, opened up an Airbnb for a little while. And then now they're up on some new property, managing it for someone else. They're 
they're fascinating insofar as that their life is so different from mine. And I remember when I first met them thinking, they're not going to like me. (laughs) I'm everything opposite of them. I am a hipster millennial kind of. I'm an artist. I spend lots of time thinking deeply and philosophizing about things. I work at a table all day, right? Like these guys are out working with their bodies and sweating and with their hands and and doing dangerous work, really dangerous work. You know, my work is arguably not dangerous, at least not physically dangerous. <laughs> and and I'm used to when I go to West Texas, like, you know, I'm wearing yoga pants, I have my hair in a top knot. Uh, often I'm wearing Warby Parker glasses. I I look like the type of person that doesn't fit, right? Just the same as if they were to come to Austin, you know, covered in dirt with their cowboy boots and hat. Like you think that would fit into Austin, but it doesn't really anymore. If you come to Austin, it looks like LA, you know? And I was concerned about this. Like, you know, here I am coming for the first time. I feel pretty out of place. And they immediately treated me like I was their best friend. And not like that fake charisma kind where you can be like, oh, this feels good, but I also know you're putting on a show. Like it was sincere. Like you're fascinating to us. We want to know you more. And I I remember thinking, do you though? (laughs) I'm probably like, going to piss you off with a lot of my beliefs and a lot of my life. And I was really concerned about this. Um, and then, and then over the, but the, but you know, the, I, I liked them and I kept going to stay at their place and I got to know them better and especially her. And we started to really realize that we had like a soul connection. Like she referred to me as like, a younger sister from another mister. You know, we were really close and I really liked her. And y'all, we were so different in so many, in pretty much, in arguably every way. It's like yellow paint next to purple paint, right? Yellow is on one side of the color wheel. Purple is on the other. Let's take it even farther. Yellow paint mixed with white is like a tint of yellow. All right, purple paint mixed with black is a shade of purple. Now you've got this light yellow next to this dark purple. Even more contrast, right? Like it was it was weird having this relationship, right? It's like seeing red in blue water. It doesn't make sense close up at all. And I remember the first time that we talked about politics, I was really scared and and she was the one that brought it up. So I was like, okay, here we go. And I thought for sure, for sure, this is going to get super uncomfortable. For sure. She's not going to want to be my friend. And the thing that I'll never forget was that, yes, we were totally different and she didn't give a shit. It wasn't that she didn't even give a shit on the surface. 
I could feel that her energy didn't give a shit either. You know, when you meet people who are being really nice on the outside, but you can feel underneath that they're like super annoyed with your perspective on something that was argue that was undeniably absent in this conversation. I felt, I felt like she really, really was interested in what I had to say. And that's really rare, if not impossible in some instances to find right now in this country especially around politics. The next trip that I I made out there, I brought Jason with me. And she and her husband were like, we want to invite you to dinner. We have some friends um, from San Antonio who are in town. They have a house here. We think you're going to love them. They're older, but they're so cool. Um, Why don't we all six of us have dinner tonight? We'll cook out on the back patio. I was, yeah, definitely so excited. So (laughs) this couple shows up and immediately we discover that they're basically the four of them are like best friends. They become very close. They, you know, our, our couple friends live in Marathon. This, this, these two older folks visit often and stay in this house that they've built in town. Um, and, you know, they've retired. They used to work in San Antonio. And y'all, they were polar opposites politically too. And I was like, what? Like, like you guys hang out all the time? And they're like, yeah, yeah. And I was like, do you like, just like not talk about certain things? No, we talk about stuff all the time. And I'll never forget that my friend, in Marathon, whose Airbnb I stayed at, I remember her saying, well, I mean, she just has a total, they have a totally different life than me. Of course they would have a different perspective. I mean, I'm not going to change my opinion because they have certain opinions, but I love hearing about their perspective because it makes me think about stuff. And what? Like, how is this? This is beautiful to talk about, right? Like, I'm wondering if some of you are thinking, wow, this is beautiful. Like, this is how it should be. And it's almost never how it is. Let's be honest. Let's really think about a time that we sat down with someone who had a radically different political opinion and we didn't get triggered to shit. That's very rare. It's very rare. And I was fascinated by this. And I I almost started to go to Marathon just so I could get to know them better because we would have increasingly intimate conversations about highly sensitive political and philosophical topics that we were, like, imagine how different two could be. Like, okay, okay, let's just make it, let's just make it Democrat and Republican. And we're actually not Democrat and Republican. I think both of us identify as independent, but on like wildly different ends of the spectrum, right? Think about having the most radically different conversations with someone over and over and over again. Like it, and, and it was successful. I, I could hardly stand it. I, I felt like I was experiencing something very special that so few people get to experience and it was changing me it wasn't changing my worldview it wasn't like I was adopting their perspectives on things because we were having these conversations but it was like they were the red in my blue water lily paint (laughs) they were 
like I was like taking pieces of the way they viewed the world that made sense to me and I would mix them with mine. And it was making my worldview more lush and more luminescent. Oh, oh. So I, I went out, okay, so so there's some, some context there. So I, I got to see them this past weekend and their life has changed. They've moved off this property in Marathon. They're like about 20 miles north on this ranch. But I stay in the Airbnb for a couple of days. Her sister lives on the property. She's available if I need anything. I go hiking in the park. I have this really lovely time. And they say, look, we really miss you. Would you be willing on the last day to come up and stay on our ranch? We really want to show you the space. We can hike up in the mountains. This is gorgeous property. I was thrilled. Yes, please. Like, I would love that. So we go up and I'm just excited to sit and talk to them. I love talking to them. And they are true Texans. They are amazing storytellers. And Jason will will chuckle and say, yeah, like probably most of their stories, if not all, are exaggerated. And I would say, yeah, I wouldn't say that they exaggerate into lie territory ever, but they're they're fabulous storytellers insofar as they know when they are re-sharing a life event, they know how to extract the pieces that mean so much and mush them together. Oh, do you know people like that? Oh, I freaking love it. So I'm ready for marathon story time and they did not disappoint. Like the first night they make this gorgeous dinner using all this fresh produce from her garden. They, we like sit up late talking and then we go to bed and wake up in the morning and have tea and it's way too rainy to go hiking. So we just sit and she and I just talk for probably four hours. It was wonderful. And she tells me a story and I was thinking as she was telling it, this story I'm going to do a podcast episode about. And I want to I share before I tell this story that it is going to be triggering to some people, maybe a lot of people, depending on how you feel about some stuff. And if you feel like you're not in a space where you want to be triggered right now, <laughs> you should consider you know coming back to this episode or maybe just skipping it it's I don't personally think it's anything violent or um really sensitive but it it is it is a touchy subject just disclaimer okay so she's like I want to tell you this thing that happened to me because It was in context of us talking about the next presidential election. Okay, so full disclosure, (laughs) she and her husband are independents and they regularly vote across party lines, which in and of itself to me is like a Monet painting, right? (laughs) They're regularly working with a variety of different shades in their political feelings (laughs) and So she was telling me that in this past presidential election, who she was going to vote for actually surprised me. She's like, this is who I would have loved to have voted for if they had made it to the end. I really didn't like either of the final candidates, as did neither did I. And she said, but, you know, this is who we ended up voting for because we felt like we had to vote. Um, And I was, but when I found out who she really wanted to vote for, 
I was surprised because it's some, they were two people I really liked. And I'm so used to us being so different. And she looked at me and she goes, we're not that different, Becca. And I, I was like, huh, okay. And she goes, here, like, can I tell you this story? So let's hone in a little bit on what, you know, I've been resisting the urge to kind of identify or define what their perspective is and what my perspective is on politics or philosophy or anything, because it really doesn't matter. But let's define it a little bit for the ease of the story. So they are, not surprisingly, like many people raised in small town Texas, highly conservative Christian when it comes to their spiritual and religious beliefs. I wouldn't say that they're conservative politically, although sometimes they are. They also could be really progressive liberally. They vote across the aisle all the time. But compared to me, they look very conservative. And I'm interestingly a very progressive Christian. My mother was a United Church of Christ minister. Um, It's the first denomination to ever ordain a woman. Like, you know, that kind of thing. So, and she knows this, right? She knows this about us. We've talked about it many times. And she says, I want to tell you a story of something that happened a couple of months ago. She said, we have this empty property on our Airbnb. You know, nobody's really using it right now. And we were approached by this man who works in the, the little town grocery store. He's been here for about a year and he has an RV that he really wants to bring into town so he can live in it. But it's really hard to find a place to put an RV in Marathon. Most of the properties are privately owned. They don't want RVs on it. And so he came to us and he said, you know, I know no one's on the property. Can I, you know, just temporarily for like three to six months, can I park my my RV on your space? I'll keep an eye on things, take care of things. And she said, you know, we really sat down and talked about it because we really like him. He's very cool. She said, and he's gay. And she said, Rebecca, religiously, we, you know, we're not, we don't want him to have his partner on our property. And I was like, oh, yeah. I guess in my mind, I never realized we'd never talked about this before, you know? And she said, but like to us, that that just didn't seem like it should be a big enough deal to tell him no. But we wanted to like also be honest with him. And so we went down to the grocery store when he was working one day. And before we could even like, you know, tell him or talk to him at all, he said, hey, y'all, he goes, I was talking to the owner of the store and he told me that y'all are really Christian. And I think it's probably best I don't stay on your property. And they were like, oh, no, I mean, you're welcome to. We just we want you to know this, you know, about about like our religious views. And he said, no, no, no. He goes, I'm not going to change like my, who I am so that I can stay on your property. He said, but also just want to tell you, I was surprised. He said, because you have treated me so lovingly and warmly. I would never have thought that you had this perspective. And I want to thank you. Y'all. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to curse right now because it's, it's deserving of a curse word. He fucking thanked them. I mean, let's exhale there for a minute. 
let's start off by saying that a lot of gay people would not have had it, would not have thanked them. They would have been highly triggered, highly hurt. All kinds of wounding from their young years would have come up, right? And instead, the way that he saw it was, wow, you have this belief and your love for me is is bigger. (laughs) Thank you for that. Just so you know, I have this belief about my sexuality, but my love for you is bigger. And she's like, Rebecca, she goes, we walked away from that conversation and I felt, I felt like something really amazing had happened and I can't describe it to you. And I remember as I was listening to her tell this story thinking how good she felt because she knows that most people in her religious sect, right? Her religious you know, organization are crappy to people like him. And she loves that she's different. She loves that about herself. She loves that she can be blue and red together. And this idea is highly triggering. And I want to acknowledge that if you're listening to this and you're like, fuck them, I don't even want to hear any more about them. That is so valid. (laughs) That is so valid. If you've been wounded over and over again in your life for your sexuality and you have no desire to know anything more about this couple, that is valid. And that's a really interesting launching point for talking about the ability to make life close and make life far, right? I want to talk about the ways that looking closely at situations and looking far from situations happens in the same way as it does with art, right? Here's this couple. They see this this young gay man who's interested in staying on their property. And when they hone in on a particular part of his lifestyle, they see it in one way. And yet they have this ability to zoom way out and see the beauty of him in the larger whole and to choose both at the same time, to work close and work far. And and y'all, he did the same freaking thing, right? When he looks at them closely, he's like this really, really religious couple. They have these very specific feelings about my lifestyle. But when I zoom back, I see this bigger reality of them and they're beautiful. It's like looking really closely at a Monet and you're like, this red and blue is, it's a fucking mistake, right? Don't we think that about people when we look really closely at someone and their specific view on something and we're like, that's a mistake that doesn't, that doesn't belong, right? Like, and, and it's not just one or the other where we could do this, right? We could look at this couple and say, they're homophobic, that doesn't belong. And therefore, I have no desire to interact with them. And I don't, and let me just, let me just go back to what I said a minute ago, that if that's a feeling you have, that's valid. This isn't um, invalidating that feeling. It's just an observation of, 
something that happens often when we are really wounded by some of the things that we see. And when we're wounded, when we're scared, remember we talked about this earlier, when we're wounded and we're scared, we want to get really close and we want to hone in and we want to block out extraneous information. But when we do that, it can also be really disorienting because we're not seeing the bigger picture. And so the things that we see don't seem to be right. Isn't that happening right now collectively in our country? Where people are like, how in the world is this shit happening? How in the world can these things be happening? This is so wrong. We're all going to hell. Or like, I'm being very dramatic. But you know you've heard versions of this. You've felt versions of this on social media, watching the news. Everything about this sucks. And you want nothing to do with it. If you could just push it away, you'd be so much happier. If it would just stop and be different, you'd be so much happier. And this, you know, and as I mentioned a minute ago, this happens on the flip side, right? Where this young man working at the grocery store, you know, he, he could have looked at this couple and, and we could have said, like on either side of this story, y'all, we could, there will be people depending on how you feel about life. There will be people on both sides of this story who will feel very strongly that, my, my couple friends or this young man would be highly justified in telling the other to fuck off, right? And he didn't do that. He zoomed back. And here's what I want to talk about when it comes to zooming back from art and zooming back in life. Remember the beginner painters. It's when you are able to let go of some fear, and takes that's when you take steps back because i promise you when you zoom out in lifetime just like when you zoom out from a painting you're going to have this like wildly expanded view everything's going to shift and it's very upsetting sometimes for good and for bad right when i would watch painters they would have the, they would be like working in this little tiny 1 inch by 1 inch spot layering and layering and layering and making everything super perfect and then they would step back and they would be like i just spent 45 minutes on this thing that doesn't fit with the rest of the painting have you had those experiences in your worldview if you haven't had those experiences in your worldview May I invite you to consider that you're painting too close to your canvas and you've been doing it for too long. And what happens if we learn in our lives to zoom out and zoom in and to recognize the beauty of both perspectives? When you do that, you get to connect with other colors that you would never have in your artwork otherwise. I will tell you how brave, and and this is just my personal opinion, I can relate more with the young man in the grocery store. I have not experienced what it's like to be homosexual, to have those types of wounds 
but I can relate to what it's like to feel like an outsider more than an insider. <laughs> and so when I hear that story, I think how how amazing of him to be able to see the beauty of my friends in spite of this thing that they believe about his life and also stand up for himself, right? Sometimes I think we equate standing up for ourselves as shitting on other people and he was able to hold both. I love you guys. I had no idea you were Christian because you've treated me with so much beauty and I'm not going to change for you just so you know that's artistic as shit right there and there's people listening to this and also that live in the world that are going to relate more to my couple friends and they're going to say whoa they have this belief this deep religious conviction and they weren't going to change it but they also love this man so much even though he had a different view of sexuality than them. They were willing to, to hold their views and make space for him as well. Be close, zoom out, be close, zoom out. There's people that are going to find both sides of this story triggering. I want to keep coming back to this. This is not easy stuff. This is hard as shit. And when you meet people that can do what I'm talking about, like these people in this story, you're witnessing tremendous inner work on all fucking sides. To have a conversation like the one I described takes tremendous inner work because having conversations like that, if you have wounds, conversations like that are going to hurt so bad. When, when you meet people that can have conversations like that, that don't include pain and, and going even further than that, include love, that's a sign that there's significantly less fear because they've done some healing. And this happens in the arts too. When you see people get more and more brave with their work, you see them starting to step back and then go close and step back and go close. Yeah. Like a Monet. Yeah. What what is this does this make you think about? All of it's valid. Are you pissed? Are you like I don't like this story? Great. Yes. This is what art does and this is what life does. It helps us see what's in side. That's incredibly important, y'all. How many people do you know in your life who never really get a good perspective on, on what's inside? And all of the stuff that's on their insides just keeps subconsciously wrecking their external life and they have no idea why and they're very victimized by their life and they're very stressed out. Yes, when you can sit with a story like this, or when you can sit in front of an artwork and notice what's triggered in you, that is a gift. It's like the art baby from, from the episode before. 
It's showing you stuff. And sometimes it's great and sometimes it's not great. So if you listen to this story and you're like, this story blows, I don't really want to listen to anymore. Great. Notice that. There's some stuff in you that is coming up right now. It's easy to point outward, isn't it? And this is where I think collectively as a culture, we get stuck. We're like, oh, you suck. You suck over there. I'm super pissed because you suck. And what I'm trying to acknowledge is that, yeah, that's true. And it's also inside of you when that both and are true. Looking really close at a painting and seeing chaos and a mess and something triggering and something that doesn't work, seeing that is valid. And when you step back and see the beauty, that's also valid. They exist at the same time. And when you work through your own stuff, your ability to work between those two places gets easier and easier and your life and your art changes. It starts to look more and more like what you want. Because you're incorporating things in your work, in your worldview, that make it better. Is it hard for you to imagine, listening to the story that I just told, on either side of that story, imagining parts of that worldview on both sides, enhancing yours? I would, I would just make one more invitation here and suggest Could it be that seeing dashes of red in the water lily painting, you know, could it be that the same with your life? That there's things that you find abhorrent that if you were able to zoom back far enough, you could see the ways that those things would make your life and your worldview better. I have to tell you just for me, and this is just me personally, there's, there's plenty of people that are going to disagree with me here, but me personally, this couple has changed my life because they can zoom back and I can zoom back and they can come close and I can come close. And we're, that is the only way that wildly different colors can function together in a way that doesn't seem chaotic. We're living in a time where I believe people are very scared and they're looking two inches from the canvas and they're losing their minds. And that makes total sense. If you go up to a Van Gogh and you put your nose a millimeter from the canvas, nothing's going to make sense. It's going to look like a mess. Insofar as you don't know what it is, don't, don't we feel like that? I know I'm, I'm, I'm repeating myself, but like, don't we feel like that right now when we look at the world? This doesn't make sense. Your nose is so close to the canvas. I want to wrap up with this, this metaphor because I heard it the other day and I was like, oh man, this is so relevant to art making, but it's, it's with, with, uh, cars. <laughs> Those are my friends that fix cars or know things about cars. I don't know shit about cars, by the way. So I'm going to be hyper generalizing here, but 
when you dissect the shocks of a car, which as even someone like me knows, <laughs> the shocks of a car are meant to soften, soften the blows that a car takes as it goes over uneven terrain so that the riders don't get shaken up to all hell. It creates a smoother ride, you know? But when you dissect the shocks, the their innards, their function is created by tension between two poles almost. And this tension creates a smoother ride for you. You need both. If you got rid of one side of this tension in the shock system, it would no longer work. This is this is something that is really relevant to art making and also living. And we see it really playing out in our political spectrum right now. So maybe it's helpful to kind of also reference that too. But politics is so triggering for people and it's probably triggering for you too. So I want to also just remind people that this isn't just a political podcast episode. This is about making art and about living. And when you allow multiple colors into your work, when you allow multiple viewpoints into your brain, it does create tension. It does create stress. And if you can zoom out and zoom in and zoom out and zoom in, you can find comfort with that stress and it softens the blows of your life. The most resilient people I know are the ones that are comfortable having conversations like the one I just described earlier. They're the ones that have worked through a lot of their inner trauma so that they can have those conversations. It's, it's possibly, and I, I feel I, I've been kind of waiting towards the end of this episode to kind of say this, but it's a crunchy idea and it's important to know that the more infuriated you are by a color or by a type of person or a type of idea, the more it's showing you your perspective instead of theirs. That's a really hard idea, even for me now. I'm working through this idea and it's I've been working through this idea just for a few years. It's transformed my life and I'm still barely scratching the surface. And this is the first time that I really felt like I could share anything about it. So I don't mean to come across as a purist here. I have a tremendously hard time with some of these ideas. When I get mad and angry and triggered and confused and scared by a person or an idea or a freaking paint color... <laughs> It's really easy for me still to say the problem is that <laughs> I'm fine. The problem is that instead of both and yes, yes, there and a problem exists over there. And there's something in you that is too close to see that it also is beautiful too, that it can be a mess and it can make sense. And you got to zoom out in order to see it. And I, 
I love the idea of like a Monet for our culture right now, because the ways that artists navigate this process is tremendously helpful for the way that our culture can start to navigate this process. Collectively, if we're able to zoom back, (laughs) there are disgusting things that infuriate us that may start to look gorgeous. It's, this is true in nature as well. You know, when I'm out in West Texas, you see, you zoom up really close. Like if, if I, if I were to sit outside in Marathon in the, in the desert ground, um, I would be at risk for getting red ants all over me, biting my legs, right? Up close, it's really easy to be like, you suck. <laughs> In that moment, they do suck. It's not, it's objectively true. <laughs> from, from my perspective, yes, it is objectively true. I could go to the store, I could buy poison, and I could bomb that red anthill. And if you zoom out to a week or a month, you might start noticing an influx of much more aggressive fire ants that are much less enjoyable to have encounters with than red ants. And why is that? Well, red ants, interestingly, keep fire ants at bay. And when you kill them, you inadvertently affect the larger work. You are looking too close and you only saw this one thing and you made a change to it and it changed the bigger thing, right? This is happening This is happening in our world right now. There are things happening in the news right now. And when you see them, it's like the red ants. You're like, that's shit. There is no other way to look at that but shit. And I'm, and I'm really fascinated by the way that artists can serve the collective right now. Because in every instance of even some of the grossest things that we can imagine, there's something larger to be taken away. The world collectively on a global scale changed permanently for the better after the Holocaust. And you can argue that there's still atrocious things happening. And that is true. A hundred percent. The things that happened during the Holocaust are still happening now. And they're still just as gross and they're still just as bad, but there's a level of awareness that can never be erased after that event. And there's people that will tell you that it can be erased and that, and that's not, that's objectively not true. There's too much written history. There's too much in our cellular memory. Epigenetics is a thing. That when you zoom back from that appalling event, there are larger things that came out of that that were proportional to that thing. Right? The more... If you have light yellow painted next to light yellow, you can't see the light yellow. It's just all invisible. But when you paint dark purple next to light yellow, you see the light yellow so clearly. 
right? There's a function for the shit in the artwork. There's a function for the darkness in the artwork. You, you need it. And there is this energy in the collective right now of we need to get rid of all of the dark. All of the bad has to go away. And artists know that that's not totally the case. That in order for something to be beautiful, it has to have its contrast next to it. And I'm sure there's people listening to this saying, oh, so are you telling us there needs to be like war and murder and atrocities in order for there to be beauty? No. But what I am saying is that when war and murder and atrocities cease to exist, we're going to have a totally different relationship with the good stuff. Because weirdly, the good stuff does get amplified next to the bad stuff. It's why I can think of kindnesses done to Jason and I much more vividly during times of distress than during times where we were great. You know, it's a very artistic idea. I'm not here saying that bad stuff is good and that we should love it and that we should, you know, embrace it. And that's, that's not helpful either. And that's bypassing the stuff that's really gross in the world. What I'm saying is that both and can exist. That we can really have a problem with certain things. And we can also see their beauty at the same time. That's an uncomfortable idea. And I remember the first time someone shared this idea with me. I kind of loved it and I kind of didn't love it. And I didn't love it for a long time. And I'm just now starting to be like, oh, like this is this is the type of stuff that you sit with for a lifetime. Um, yeah. So if you're feeling like that, yeah. There you go. Good. It's, it's a big, this is a big episode. <laughs> I was chatting with someone who listens to the podcast last week and they said, I had to listen to, to the art baby in two chunks. And it's like, there was just so much and I just needed a break. And it was a compliment, but also it was like an acknowledgement of how dense that episode was. And I know this one is even more so. And, and, and I'm, this is, this is the, uh, this is the unfiltered secret sauce of the moment. This is me sitting down in my son's room and it's all just coming. So in the future, like take these, like, if you like these episodes and you're also exhausted right now. Like if you've just listened to this whole thing and you're like, damn, Brelly, I'm kind of pissed at you. Cool. I'm, I want to validate that for you. <laughs> you have permission to be pissed. Take these in little chunks. Maybe this was a message that should have come at the beginning of the episode. I'll, I'll do it next time. Because there's people whose podcasts I love that I have to do that. Where I have to take it little bits at a time. Um... And in the future, as Brady gets older and I get more time, I'm going to, oh, Lordy, I'm going to filter these and streamline them. Or maybe I won't. Maybe it'll just stay super dense. But 
for now, that's, that's what secret sauce is. And I want to thank you. If you're, if you're intrigued by this, if you're listening to this, if you're absorbing this idea, thank you. And also, as I've always said, and I want to just sort of reiterate it, because I don't think I've said it in either of the first two episodes since Secret Sauce has been back, take what resonates with you and leave the rest. If there were parts of this episode that just don't do it for you, leave them. Great. It's great. That's what artists do. They incorporate the parts that really resonate and they give themselves permission to leave the other stuff. There's this idea that we're supposed to entertain everything sometimes and we don't have to do that. That's why I have this really great relationship with this couple and I think it's why they have a great relationship with me because they don't feel forced to entertain all the parts of my worldview and and vice versa I don't entertain all theirs and we have this friendship that is honestly one of the best I've ever had in my life I have been more wounded in philosophical and political conversations with people that think like me than I have with them that's I mean that's a paradox right there and I want to end with that that's art That's what art is. It's both and. It's messy and it makes sense. It's ugly and it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm tired too. I think I need to go have some food or something. (laughs) I love y'all. I look forward to talking to you in a week. Let me know what you think. If you have any thoughts, I want to, I want to hear any of them. Do you hate this? Are you annoyed by it? Great. I want to know if you love it. I also want to know, um, until next time, peace.